You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. just like to read first Peter with you blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, we are starting a new series this morning in the book of Ruth. And this is something that we do every year at this, this particular season in the winter. Since the history of our church, we've, we've had a series in a small Old Testament book. And I love doing this. This year is no different. And I'm very excited to share this beautiful love story with you all in these next few weeks. I don't actually know how many weeks it's going to be, but it's going to be very powerful. I mean, who doesn't love a good love story, right? I mean, really. Like, a good love story is, is something that knits our hearts together. It's, it's showing us the redeeming love of God. Uh, you have to be a pretty broken and bitter person to not enjoy a love story. Am I right? You know what I'm saying? Um, Well, we're going to actually meet one of those broken, bitter people pretty soon here in this story as we get into this. Um, One of the real-life characters from God's Word in this story is exactly that person, bitter and broken. But even for those people, they at least start with a hope in a, in a pursuit of love. They want that happily ever after. That's a desire of hope. It's a craving for a magical chemistry and, and something that we all crave where we find this relationship where we have peace and fulfillment and satisfaction. And I want to point out that this you know, inexpressible something that we all crave always starts with optimism. But it doesn't always end in optimism. As we go through this story, it's going to become more and more apparent that there's a very crucial ingredient that you have to have for this to actually work, for this love to stay. There's a very important ingredient. And it's going to emerge as we, as before we even finish chapter one of this book, or of this, of this yeah, of, of the book of Ruth. But here's what I want to start with this morning, and it's a warning for all of the helpless romantics in the room right now, okay? What you 
You can't always judge what you see is an accurate interpretation of what's going on. You can't always judge that. You just can't always see it all. You can't always know it all. And what I mean is, you know, just take the, take the example of love, right? Love at first sight isn't really a real thing, right? It, it's more like attraction at first sight. That's very real. But it's important to know that for something to turn into lasting love, God has to be in it. And if God's not in it, there's going to be a lot of pain. And thankfully, I'm no longer on the dating scene. I'm very, very thankful for that. For 10 years, I have been off the dating scene with my wife, Julie. And I think back to those days, and I know some of you are still in those days, um, and it's hard. And it hasn't gotten any easier in, in 10 years. It's probably just gotten harder and harder and harder. But Dating can often be painful, and I, I went through that, where you can think you know a person, and they're putting their best foot forward, right? They're giving the very best present, presentation of themselves, but you don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. What you see in a first, the first few dates isn't really a completely accurate picture of that person's heart, of that person. So when I was... Dating, I wasn't very good at picking out girls. Like I, I remember the different crushes and attractions I had. And, and I mean, looking back at that now, I'm like, wow, God saved me there, and woof, God saved me there. Like I had no idea what I was doing. But God's mercy was there upon my life, and his grace was there in my life, and he's given me my wife Julie. But God protected me every step of the way. And in dating, just like everything we're gonna see here. Very much so, you can't always judge what you see is an accurate interpretation of what's really going on. Just as in the ups and downs of life. And that's where the book of Ruth is coming in. In the sunshine and the gray, you can't always know what God is doing. So I've said this a number of times already, and I'm going to say it again. We can't always judge what we see as an accurate interpretation of what's going on. And that is exactly where we're at when we enter Ruth chapter 1. There's four main characters in this story. There's Ruth, obviously. The book is named after her. There's Naomi. She's the one who talks the most in this book. There's Boaz. And then there's God. Those are the four main characters, and there's some other support characters that we're going to meet today. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already read the book of Ruth uh, recently, maybe ever, read through the book of Ruth a few times this week. It'll take you like six minutes, and it is well worth the read, because this is a gold mine of finding truth about God, truth about life which is what we're gonna, where we're going to be here. So there's these developmental characters, but there's really only two that this morning we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on the bitter, broken character, Naomi, and we're going to focus on the hero of this whole story, our sovereign, almighty God, who is in control of everything that is going on. God is faithful, and he is good. Naomi is... He's, she's going to know one of those two. She's never going to forget one of those two, but there's one that she's going to miss in this story. 
So since this is a narrative, I'm going to read chapter one for you today, and it's just going to be a different sermon than normal. I don't have three points. I really only have one point today. Uh, So we're going to read that, the entirety of what God is setting up. And I always love when we have an opening sermon in a series, partly because I'm just like a history guy, and I I love presenting and diving into the historical context of what's going on, because when we, when we really see all of that, everything starts opening up. It's so, it's so awesome when that happens. Uh, but this is an ancient story written a thousand years before Jesus Christ came into the world, and it's an endless story of, of beauty. It's, a, it's comforting in its redemptive theme, and it's paramount in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. So those are the big themes that we're going to be seeing. So let's Without any further ado, read Ruth chapter 1, and would you follow along with me as I read the text? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were the Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, I may, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband, this, this night I should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. 
For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I told you this was a beautiful story. And like many beautiful stories, it starts out pretty grim, right? We have a decade of famine and death and more death. Think about what these, these women have been through together. The patriarch is gone. The husband is gone. The other husband is gone. There's no blood tie between Ruth and Orpah and Naomi. Yet, Naomi is like, all right, nothing else to do, nowhere else to go. I'm going to go home. First seven verses is just the most oppressive dialogue you can almost read in the Bible. I mean, like narration. And there's no dialogue at all until you get to verse 8. And so by the time we get to that first line of dialogue, you can feel the heaviness, right? But let's back up, because I want us to see, in part, why it got so bad. How did it come to this? And how, maybe you're asking, how can I not become bitter? How can you stay beautiful when there's ugliness all around you? Those are important questions. Does the biblical author give us anything to go on here? Well, the answer is yes. Most definitely, yes. So verse 1, let's start right there. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This actually tells us a lot. It's a little over a 1,000 years, I said, as I said earlier, before the miraculous birth of our, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is right in the middle of the book of Judges. So this is, this is a story that for whatever reason is not in the middle of the book of Judges. It's its own spinoff because there's a very different theme going on in this book of Ruth than in the book of Judges. Very similar themes, but this one has got a really good ending. What were these days like? What were the days of Judges like for God's people? Well, if you literally turn back one page in your Bible and you read the last line of the book of Judges, it says... That in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Maybe you've heard that if you're familiar with, with the Bible at all. You've probably heard that line. God's intention was for Israel, his chosen people, to be a theocracy. That's what he intended to establish. So a theocracy was where they didn't have a human king. God was their king. They were supposed to be different than all the other nations around them. 
and actually worship God and make God their king. And they were to be a beacon, a light shining on a hill for everyone else to see the nature, the true nature of the one true God. Does that sound familiar? Sound familiar to today? That was, that was God's plan for, the, for Israel, to be a theocracy. But there was no king in Israel because the people of Israel rejected their king. And they adopted all the practices of the pagan nations around them. They rejected God. They walked away from God. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is an age of, of moral relativism. Nobody's, nobody's following God. And of course, there's a few people. There's judges. There's some prophets that will speak up, show, judgment of, the, show the judgment of God, which is really what's happening right now with this famine. This is another cycle of the judgment of God because God's people are in rebellion against him. This is some of the darkest days in, in Israelite history, and that's saying something for anyone who knows the history of the Jews at all. This is as bad as it gets. So there's famine in the land. This is not a good time. People are rebelling against God, by and large. They have ignored their sovereign, almighty king, and they're doing whatever they want to do. They rejected their authority, and they made themselves the authority, and everything went to hell in a handbasket. Living for yourself, this is a lesson for all of us, what does it do? Where does it end? Where does it go? It brings pain and heartache. I was actually uh, talking with a couple of my, my family members yesterday. You can probably imagine who. My two little boys. I'll just say it. And uh, they had a run-in with each other. This is what boys do, right? One of them pushed, got in the face of the other one pretty aggressively. I know where they get that. Okay, I know where they get that. <laughs> and so we had an opportunity here. This is, this is a cause for discipline. And I had my son go to the Bible, and I said, I need you to find three verses on the loving kindness of God, and I want you to write those out, and then we're going to talk about those. So as, as we were doing that, it took them like all day, pretty much, but uh, <laughs> on and off, we, we still did a few things here and there. We got there at the end of the day, family devotions, and let's talk about this. I see you found Philippians chapter 2 about considering others more significant than yourself. And we had a family conversation. You know what happens when you live for yourself? Now, of course, other people aren't more significant than you. Everybody's created equally. God loves everyone, right? But what we're seeing is we're seeing an example here of Jesus Christ, who though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became a servant. So what did Jesus do for us? He served others. And think about this. If you're living your life for number one, and you're, you're doing what's right in your own eyes, and you're, and you're fighting for your rights, and you're getting your way, who's looking out for you? Well, well, you are. One person looking out for one person, right? If that's the way everybody's living. Like every man for themselves, some people are going to thrive and get far, other people are going to get crushed and stomped all over, right? But if we take... God's plan, and we apply that to our lives, and we start considering others more significant, I'm going to strive for unity. I'm going to, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to be a peacemaker here in this situation. Guess what? Now you have 100 people. Everybody in your sphere of influence is looking after you. What sounds better? 
Me looking out for me, one-on-one, or 100 people looking out for you? And then you looking out for everyone else you come, like, wow, there's a lot more comfort, there's a lot more security in that, right? So in the time of judges, that's not happening. And now we have our first developmental character, a little side character who actually plays a big part in this. Uh, Back to Ruth 1. We have Elimelech of Bethlehem. So I told you this story starts out grim, we, gritty. We got that. No surprise here. The first support character fits the mold of that. The interesting thing about this book is literally every name in here has a meaning. It's really powerful that way. Uh, Elimelech's name means God is my king. And Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, that name means house of bread. So we already have some irony here if, you can, if you're following along, right? So house of bread, there is no bread. There's a famine in the land. So that's a pretty bad name for a city that's supposed to have bread with no bread. It's like pretty place if it burned down and got charred by a fire. And I don't even want to think about that. That's a grim thought in and of itself, right? But you can't call it pretty place anymore because it's, it's ash. That's pretty much what's going on here in Bethlehem. This is grim. It's a famine. Elimelech, his name, he has some parents who at least named him a really good name, right? Who've taught him truth about God. His name means God is my king. But what does Elimelech do? Well, got to provide for your family, right? So we got to pick up and move. Well, there's a lot more than meets the eye there. What you see at first isn't really the full story because he decides to move 50 miles away to Moab. And in that time, this is like saying goodbye to your friends and family and starting a new life, and you may never see them again. Not only is the distance a big deal, but Moab is the enemy of Israel. These are not good people, okay? Uh, If you look into the Old Testament history in the book of Genesis, Lot, who left and fled Sodom, the wicked city that God had to judge and destroy, leaves Sodom and has an incestuous relationship with his daughters, and one of his daughters had a son named Moab. These are the Moabites. These are disgusting people. They are morally repugnant. This is the Moabite women, that's a whole other piece of Genesis as well. Very sensual, very nasty, the scum of the earth kind of place that you would never, ever want your family to come close to, okay? Think like, well, I mean, I could think of a lot of bad places, right? Like, if, if you love Star Wars, think Mos Espa, okay? We already had Chilion. We had these Star Wars names already. I kind of got on that track. Uh, for those of you who aren't Star Wars nerds, just think like down, like an awful part of L.A. or Chicago, don't want to go there to raise your family, okay? And what Elimelech is doing is he is taking what's in front of me right now. We need food. I don't understand what God is doing. Why are we in this place? And as the leader of his home, he's looking at the current circumstances. He's not thinking ahead to step one, two, and three beyond that of what is this going to do for your family? What is this going to do for your wife? What kind of friends is she going to have? What what about your boys? Who are they going to marry? All of that is thrown out the window for like, what can I do right now? 
Elimelech takes his family into Moab. He does not treat God as the king of his heart like we just sang about, right? He does the opposite. He does not live up to his name, and he goes into Moab so they can get bread, so they can live. And what happens? He dies anyway. You see that? He dies anyway. There's some hope there. At least his sons got married, I guess. <laughs> uh, so far, we don't know much about these women up to this point as we're chronologically going through this. But then the sons die. So here's a guy taking matters into his own hands. He's not thinking about the decisions of leading his family well. He, he's, he's going after the money rather than protecting his family trying to make ends eat, make ends meet. But he dies, and they die. And now his, his wife is left hopeless, helpless. She's in a really, really, really bad place. Now, we don't know how he died. We don't know how the sons died. But just like life, we don't always get the answers. And the story just keeps unfolding before us, right? So we're going to have to keep moving here. But she, like Naomi now, like to turn to Naomi, she is destined, humanly speaking, to destitution. This is, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing going for her. She had a glimmer of hope with her two sons, and now that's dashed. That's gone. And again, I want to remind us, this is where you can't always judge what you see as an accurate interpretation of what's really going on. God is doing something here that no one could have ever, ever foreseen. The son's dying feels like a death nail. In that, in that situation, it's over. But they were the final catalyst to set up Ruth because God is working a master plan. He's orchestrating something beyond anything that the characters of this story could have ever imagined or even prayed for. Ruth is coming into the scene. Now let's hold off on Ruth for a minute and let's talk about Naomi a little bit more. In verse six, you know, we have this new chapter, right? In the life of Naomi. She heard that the Lord, she's in the fields and she heard there's actually bread in Bethlehem again. The famine is lifted. So she decides, I'm gonna actually suck it up, humble myself and go back to Bethlehem. What a family here, right? You got the matriarch, and you got our two daughter-in-laws. The men are all dead. There's really nothing connecting her to Ruth and Orpah anymore. These girls are still young. You know, as this story find, uh, unfolds, we're going to find out Ruth is very beautiful. She's a very attractive young woman. So, so they could easily stay in Moab with their people. They could remarry. That's what, that's what Naomi's saying. Like, look, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing here for you. I'm, I'm bitter. I'm angry at God. He is sovereign. She never lost sight of that one, notice. She keeps saying here, God is sovereign. God brought this calamity on me. She's doubting the goodness of God. And, and, and different people struggle with different sides of that. Sometimes it's like, I know God is good, but is God really in control? 
Like, he loves me. I get that. But is he, is he really in control? She didn't have that problem. She knew God was his sovereign. She knew God was controlling the situation. But God's dealt bitterly with me. She doubted the goodness of God. So she is weary. She's tired. She's broken. She's doubting God's love for her. And in a weird and mysterious way here, what Naomi decides to do, God still works. Because actually, Naomi, it may sound awful, and it kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. What did she say to, to, to Ruth and Orpah? Leave me alone, go home, and just let me go on with my life and let, let, it, end, let it end bitterly, right? That's what she's really doing is telling them to go back and worship Allah. Now, Allah wasn't the god of the Moabites, but they had a whole bunch of false gods. So this is pretty bad evangelism, don't you think? I mean, this is like anti-evangelism, right? Like she's not saying the right things. Leave me alone. Go back to your gods. Go get married. I'm out of here. But God in his mercy, God in his grace... Our sovereign God actually still uses a kernel. There's a thread here of what? She's being selfless. Naomi is still actually believes in the sovereignty of God. Naomi, in some small piece in her, says, God's in control of this. This is awful. But hey, you do your thing, and I'm going to go over here. And, and we don't know all the stuff that, that Naomi taught Ruth for the 10 years that they actually were together. We don't, we don't know all the conversations that were going on. But you have to see here, this, and most, most commentators and theologians would say, this act of selflessness, because, I mean, let's, let's face it, like, she had no one, right? So at the very least, Naomi is still saying, leave me. God's in control, and you go live a better life. That act of selflessness is all it took to spark and connect all these things that Ruth heard Naomi talk about her God over the years. That's what did it. Again, you wonder, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to witness to people. I don't know how to say the right thing. I'm going to say the wrong thing. Yeah, you probably will. We all do, right? None of us say the right thing all the time. Do you see that it doesn't matter? God's going to work despite our failures. Even when we're unfaithful, he is still faithful. So God intervenes. This seed brings faith into Ruth. And we have a prime example of the mystery of God working in brokenness. Now, I don't recommend ever saying these things that Naomi said, but God used it. There was something here that moved both of these women, Orpah and Ruth, and they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to stay. And they cried more. They're weeping. And Naomi insists, no, seriously, go. Orpah's like, all right, I'm going to go meet a man, and I'm going to turn my life around. And that's what she does. Ruth does not do that. She's, she actually does not leave. I, can you just see, before, before we 
Look at Ruth's statement here, which is incredible. I want you to really, really picture this. Naomi is in a bad way. There's waves of emotion crashing onto the ship. The ship is sinking. She's soaking wet. What she, she's not in a right, the right place, saying the right things. But God is intervening in all of that, and Ruth still sees through it all that Naomi has something I don't have. She has an anchor. There, there is faith in this God that I don't understand, but I want that. Because deep down, Naomi still believed that God was sovereign. You can see it in verse 13. So when Naomi feels abandoned by God, seemingly to the bitter end, that's when God shows up. He saves Ruth, and he brings Ruth into her life. The name Ruth means companion. It means friend. Naomi changed her name tomorrow. We saw that, right? It means bitter. She's just out and out saying, I'm a bitter old lady, all right? She's not even trying to hide it. God loved Naomi. God never gave up. God's faithfulness came running after her. And he gives her Ruth. And this is what Ruth says. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. God gave Naomi a friend to the bitter end that didn't turn out bitter, as we're going to see as the story unfolds. Because that's who God is. God brings her a loving companion. In the midst of the pain, Naomi is still scratching and crawling and holding on to a something about God. She's going back to Bethlehem after all these years. It's a small town. Everyone's going to talk. This is going to be humiliating. This is not going to be a great situation, right? There's no, there's no good options at this point, humanly speaking. But God's giving grace. God is showing mercy. God gives her a friend. And we have to see that's who our God is. You can't always judge what you see is an accurate interpretation of what's really going on. There's so many things that God is orchestrating here. But there is always a faithful God working and loving and holding you up. There's a lot more to this story. We got a lot, we got a lot more to cover. But here we have Ruth you know, seeing this distorted, flawed faith in Naomi, and she still says, I want that. I trust God. I'm going to be here for you. And we're going to get into Ruth. There's, I, I can't wait to really dive into her uh, because she is going to teach us so many things. We're just getting started. But here's the point that I want you to see today, the point of the whole story of Ruth. Trust God. Trust God even when what you see makes no sense at all. You have no answers. God hasn't given you any answers. 
but you can still trust him. That's like every song that we just sang this morning was about that. Elimelech, he was unfaithful. He didn't trust God. He brought pain and misery into his home because he did not trust his king. Naomi, through it all, still had the ability to release Ruth and Orpah because there was still something she was holding on to with her trust in God. Now, she was angry at God. She was bitter, but she knew that God would not allow anything to happen that wasn't pointless. She doubted the goodness of God, but she knew that he actually was not purposeless, that he does have full control. And we all have to remember, I don't, I don't know where all of you are at today. I know there's people in this room who didn't even feel like coming. Maybe you're so hurt, you're so broken, you're so just feeling it, the effects of other people's decisions, that you are sitting there crying out to God, why, and I don't even feel like coming to see God's people. But you come anyway and you sing about God, and here you go, you have a, you have a message about, about hope in a hopeless time. You have God who reigns over all, who is good, who loves you, who will be there for you. The Bible says that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is good news, my friends. So if you know God, you don't suffer for suffering's sake. Affliction always has a purpose, and the purpose is for the glory of God. Every hardship and every affliction is used by the sovereignty of God for his glory and for our good. Even if it, it's 10 years and it doesn't, you don't feel it or see it, there's something going on. We can see that in the book of Ruth. So God is sovereign and he is good. If you only believe that he is good and that he is in control of all of life, you're going to be scared. Your faith is going to shrivel up. If you only believe that he is sovereign and then you forget that he is good, you're going to have a faith that gets beaten down and you will get bitter. But God's love is greater than all of that. God loves you when you don't love him. God loves you when no one else around you is loving you. Everyone else in your life is making horrible decisions and you're suffering and feeling the consequences of those decisions, hang on. Trust God. He's got a Ruth for you. He's got a plan for you. And he has not changed. He has a purpose and a calling for your life. In some way, even though you have no clue how, he is going to get glory for it, and you're going to get good from it. So trust God. He is faithful when you are not. And this is a timeless story. It's, it's been, in the, been around a long time, right? So I know some of you know how this story ends. Some of you may not. But I feel pretty safe in giving you a spoiler here. I'm going to give you one spoiler, and it's, I, I tr trust me, you're still going to learn a lot. There's still way more to unpack here. But I can't help but giving you one thing. You may realize how this story ends, but I wanna, I'm going to bring you in on one little piece of the ending, a little side piece of the ending. 
Ruth is going to find a kinsman redeemer. We're going to meet this guy named Boaz next week. He is a picture and a type of Jesus Christ, our redeemer. Okay, that's, there's a lot there. God is going to bless her and bring her a man who is going to save her, Ruth, from a life of poverty and pain. And she's going to have a son named Obed. And Obed is going to have a son named Jesse. And Jesse is going to have a son named David. Ruth, the Moabite woman, through all this pain and suffering, through terrible presentation of God, comes to know God, and she is in the lineage of our Savior Jesus Christ from the city of Bethlehem. Because that's how God works. Can I get an amen for that? We have no idea what's going on. And the hard thing you're dealing with right now, I get it. It's painful. Why, God? Why? We are talking to a God who knows you, who loves you, who is there for you, who has a plan. Even when you mess up and make mistakes, he's going to still work through it. That's how powerful he is. Let's close with Romans chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You are loved.